millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Stephen. And I'm Helen. And on this week's New Statement podcast... Eggs. Glorious Easter eggs. And uh, why Theresa May was very right to comment on them. And the necessity of a war against those awful Spaniards. Maybe with eggs. Maybe we could throw eggs at them, rolling all our news stories into one. And unfortunately, yes, we are going to talk about Ken Livingston and what has happened with the allegations of anti-Semitism against him. Plus, you and I ask Helen about uh, her experience as a very, very old media correspondent. All right, wind your neck in. War! What is it good for? Well, it's good for front pages. I think that's what we've learned. I'm really up for the idea. What is? The, what do you think our budget is the largest object we could beam something onto? A wall, Maybe. I just feel like, do you know what, we should do something symbolically liberal, like we should beam a Giva Hofstadt speech onto a small wall. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, with the NS's budget, we are really are talking about, you know, a fence. Yeah. A picket fence. But it would show willing. One of those laser pointers that they banned from secondary school because the people were blinding other kids with them. Um, but yeah, so, war. Well, you've been quite down on the idea. I mean, I, I okay. I've, of war, yeah. That's that's. Let me rephrase that. Obviously, I'm not pro-war with Spain over Gibraltar. Although I think someone pointed out on Twitter, it is going all quite Tudor quite quickly. Um, the main thing I'm worried about is the idea that actually we don't have any ships with which to prosecute this war. So what we're really talking about is a land war with Spain, which seems a bit of an escalation when we only triggered Article 50 last week. Yeah. So so basically, what happened was. Uh, in case you've missed this slightly bizarre story, is Theresa May set her Article 50 letter, actually a fairly reasonable uh, document in terms of the various political, you know, whatever you have to circumnavigate, and got a very reasonable response back from uh, the European Commission, which included a line about the, you know, Spain will be able to veto any future relationship uh, involving Gibraltar, which, as a form of words, is a diplomatic coup for Madrid, but it doesn't give Spain any new rights than it doesn't have as an EU member which can veto the deal, nor does it change the legal rights, obligations and status of Gibraltar. Uh, the very strong rumour reported in the Times, I've heard it, I know some people at The Guardian had heard it as well, is that Downing Street and uh, Dexu, uh, a.k.a. the Brexit department, had decided that because Spain is, is, is very sensitive about Gibraltar and ultimately 
whatever happens, Gibraltar is going to remain part of the United Kingdom, then it would be a good quick diplomatic win just to let Spain have this meaningless form of words. But it then turned the out that the British tabloids and indeed large parts of the Conservative Party didn't. Went bonkers, went yeah. completely bonkers. So Michael Howard turned up on some of the Sunday shows going like, basically, I don't think we should rule out a war. And then some retired general, no, sorry, Admiral, because it was Navy, yeah. said um, we could still singe the King of Spain's beard. And you were like, oh my God, is this like some sort of historical reenactment society? Is that what Brexit is going to mean? It's like the sealed knot forever. Um, my interest, I thought um, Peter Wilby makes a good point in this week's magazine, which is that basically what we will be arguing for post-Brexit deal is essentially the... Because f- the one thing that Spain could do, right, is snarl up the border between the mainland and Gibraltar, you know, so that it's actually... It's going to have a catastrophic effect on Gibraltar's economy. So what essentially Britain is going to be lobbying for is the free movement of people between the EU and um, Britain. Yes, I mean... Except for all the other time, we're very, very against the free movement of people, but not in this case. But so I think one of the interesting things that the last week has shown for a variety of reasons in a variety of news stories is the number of people who appreciate what being a third country in the EU from the EU will be like, both from a the, the freedoms it does give you um, and the, the limitations it places on you is, is much smaller than I thought it was. Because, for example, with, with Gibraltar, Actually, Gibraltar is one of the few areas of um, foreign policy where actually, to be honest, Britain hasn't really done anything that bad. I mean, they use it. It's basically their their business model is that they're a tax haven. But, no, but we haven't like slaughtered or enslaved the, res- the original residents yeah, no, of it's, Gibraltar. It's, it's surprisingly like non-evil. Um, but, you know, c- considering also, you know, it's, it's, it's a Tudor acquisition, era acquisition. So... You know, m- most things from that period are a lot more evil. Um, but Spain has, for a long time, had... And, of course, you know, I imagine if Tunsbridge Wells was part of France, the male would, would do this too, uh, but has had a series of ridiculous asks and semi-regularly in any commun- com- communique about the future of the EU, Spain, the Spanish government has gone, oh, we'd like some language about uh, Gibraltar. The other 26 nations of the EU have looked at their feet and gone, God, this is awkward. And then the British government has gone, no, we're going to veto that. But of course, now now that Britain is leaving the EU, why if you're, you know, obviously if you're the French government, you think this is embarrassing and cringeworthy. But why do you want to irritate? Why is it in your interest, right? We will not be in the EU. And so the EU will therefore not care or have anyone in the EU going, oh, let's not, create a problem for Theresa May domestically. make you think that um, we might end up in a situation, a Norway-type situation, right, where we've got a complete fudge that is as close to EU membership as you could possibly have, except without single market or customs union membership with big payments. I mean, I know you've been talking about this for a, for a while, but I thought the Gibraltar row... And I thought your piece actually about immigration was really good, is that, you know, saying that actually people are going to have to stop dumping blame on the EU... And actually, they're going to have to take, you know, they're going to have to take account of the fact that lots of things that they blamed on the EU, that was just incredibly convenient, right? Yeah, I mean, so my my instinct, and in terms of the two letters, yeah, this is the weird thing is we've had this, this, this very fraught week in terms of British newspaper headlines and a lot of pointing and laughing in most European newspapers about the behaviour of large chunks of the British press and political establishment. 
But actually, the option for a deal where Britain pays through the nose for the access it needs is still very much on the cards. And my instinct is what you will eventually end up with a Norway, yeah, basically Norway, but for immigration instead of fish. Um, and we will pay considerably more and have considerably less sovereignty if that's a thing you care about. Uh, but we will have the freedom to strike our own trade deals. I think that's going to be a big... I mean, maybe this is just being, being optimistic. I think that's going to be a really big problem for the Tory party, though, because the uh, such a live debate between them. Yeah, there is a big kind of block of people who would accept, for example, what you say, yielding up sovereignty, who would say, well, OK, well, we just have to adopt all of the um, regulations if we want to trade with this market. But there is a significant chunk of that party that does not want to do that at all. The interesting psychological question is people don't like to admit they're wrong, right? That That is why it's difficult for political parties to win elections once they lose them, because you have to find a way of going, well, we're not these other people, but here's why your decision to not vote for us last time, and it's very fraught. So in a way, I think that makes pressure in the Tory party easier to... to to avoid on the oh we we haven't given we have actually got a lot of sovereignty it just happens that because when you we've trade, chosen to yeah. accept all of these regulations and that is a beautiful exercise of everything that Magna Carta stood for yeah and I think this is the thing isn't when you when you trade with a large block and yeah this is something both the EU and the US do is they attempt to integrate their trading partners into their own arbitration uh, systems right so. You, you don't have a neutral arbiter if you do a trade deal with the US. You don't have a neutral arbiter if you do a trade deal with the EU. One of the reasons why a US-EU trade deal has taken so long and has founded so many times is they are both large enough that they can't do what they do to everyone else they strike trade deals with. So, and, and this thing is actually, it is an open question. Obviously, I feel very strongly that pooled sovereignty is worth more than these losses upwards of sovereignty every time you strike a trade deal with a bigger nation than you are. But the reality is you can have it both ways. The difficulty is, of course, that most people who go on about sovereignty in British politics don't have a very sophisticated approach to it. Well, talking of people who don't have a sophisticated approach, let's move on to egg gate. Yep. Your um, exclusive. My exclusive. Yep. See what I really don't enjoy the way that the Lib Dem press office really got into that. Although they were like, they, they found some new meaning of the word poach that literally no one had ever used before. But uh, here's the thing. I'm, so for, for those people who thankfully avoided this complete cluster fudge, um, what seems to happen is that a private Christian chocolate company is producing something called The Real Easter Egg, which tells the story of Jesus and Easter, Jesus, um, and then managed to somehow get the Archbishop of York to kind of put out a load of quotes that promote, promoted this. I said, oh, how terrible Cadbury's have taken Easter off it. Why not buy... And literally the end of his quote says, why not buy the real... I encourage people to buy the real Easter egg. So, you know, the celebrity endorsement everyone wanted, the Archbishop of York. Um, and the Telegraph turned this into a front-page story. Everyone with a brain when uh, like the URL is easter.cabries.co.uk, right? The fact it's called the Great British Egg Hunt is clearly purely just to try and riff off the popularity of the Great British Bake Off. Well, it's the classic thing. And so Cadbury's is sponsoring the National Trusting and providing the eggs. So they have asked for it to be called the Cadbury's Egg Hunt. But in the National Trust's press release, full disclosure, I am actually a member of 
the National Trust. My partners grew up on a farm. They love all of that stuff. We've no, got I, a couples membership. That's lovely. But um, I just, I, I, my my parents, my parents and Laura are both National Trust members. I've, I've walked down many a kind of ha-ha yeah. in my time, but I just don't have a membership myself because I live in SE13. But in this year's sort of guide, it's Easter Cadbury egg hunt, right? You know, the word Easter has not been banned from any, from either the National Trust or Cadbury's literature. It is fake news. Um, but the thing is that fascinating is that Theresa May, who is, not, you know, has a really great, someone did a really great series of tweets that's like, Theresa May refuses to comment on Donald Trump's Muslim ban. Theresa May refuses to comment on the male's Lexit headline, right? Theresa May refuses to comment on man, like nuclear Armageddon. Theresa May, outrageous that they would take Easter out of, um, out of this packaging. And you think there might be some beef, some egg beef. Well, so not, not, not I. Civil servants Sources. and ex-bads have told me, and to be honest, I do think they're probably right because it seems highly likely, think that this is because Helen Gosch, the uh, Director General of the National Trust, in her previous life was Permanent Secretary at the Home Office. She and Theresa May did not get on well. They fell out to the extent that when she did get this job at the National Trust, she had informed Downing Street, uh, she'd informed, oh, who... I think it was Gus O'Donnell at that, or Jeremy Haywood, but she'd have formed the head of, but she hadn't told the the Secretary of State she worked. Yeah, it was basically like, by the way, I'm leaving. You know, goodbye and thanks for nothing. Um, so lots of people, you know, who I've spoken to believe that she is, you know, so one, one, one former official said she was obsessed with revenge. This has happened because she hates Helen and this is why... Uh, and for, it's bad news for you because she's fallen out with another Helen, Helen Bauer Easton, who used to brief the Downing Street, uh, used to do the Downing Street lobby briefing. Uh, there were there have been lots of reported incidences of, of of the new Downing Street team going, "Didn't you know we'd moved that meeting?" and and kind of you know. This relates to the fact that this is how badly this story affected me because I got quite cross about it yesterday. That last night I had a dream that Nick Timothy had lost an enormous amount of weight. That he was like one of those people in the subway adverts, you know, who hold out their trousers. And you were like, wow, Nick Timothy, you look amazing. Which I think my brain has mashed together from the fact that when he grew a beard, everyone was really surprised about it. But if there are any dream experts, I'm really, even Freud himself, I think, would struggle to find the interpretation of what my dream about Nick Timothy losing like 200 pounds means. Do you love him? You want to be the one Helen to conquer his heart? <laughs> um, but so, but the other, the other thing is it was obviously much faster than Theresa May. Uh, as much as it hurts me to praise other inferior email product, products, uh, Matt Chorley had a very good riff, which you can read on the Times website, um, on, on exactly this, right? Then... In the same space of time, there has also been uh, a chemical uh, weapons attack by the Syrian government. I mean, allegedly, but, you know, we, we all kind they of did know it. Yeah. Boris, Boris Johnson has come out and said they were, Theresa May, however many long hour wait, like this attack, which has allegedly been done by the Syrian government. And you just think, so, so if someone uses sarin gas... Yeah, they get that, the you allegedly. Get the, you get the allegedly and like, okay, we've got to, got to make sure that my facts are entirely right. But if someone who you used to work with doesn't ban Easter, um, and I think it does, and obviously it doesn't really matter because everything else is going on in British politics at the moment, but it does show that... I think it shows that culture wars, I mean, I know this isn't them coming here, they're already firmly here, but we're mm -hmm. in an intense... I think that particularly the Sun and the Mail really see, and Telegraph, really see this as an opportunity to put on sales by doing some kind of great, what they see is really like, you know, light-hearted, high-spirited kind of saber-rattling, right, of the type that they think their readers want. 
Um, I think that, you know, the sun, I mean, like up yours, send yours, right? It's just that is the kind of recapturing the glory days of kind of Kelvin McKenzie era when the sun was very... uh, well, it was incredibly bullying paper, but it was a very um, confident paper, right? And I think they feel that this is a time when they... And actually what people want is that kind of confidence from papers again. And so here's the question I've been wrestling with. Patrick O'Flynn, who's UKIP's media spokesperson, and I would say one of the more normal people in UKIP, perhaps not a high bar, but it is one that he's cleared, um, is um, said, you know, this is the trouble, is that you lefties don't understand why you lost because you mock people who want blue passports back and you mock you know, the egg thing. And I said, well, two things really there. The first is we're mocking the egg thing because it's literally not true. And two... I actually, if you talk to actual, like my parents are quite devout Christians, right? And actually they're more of the Jeremy Corbyn opinion, right? Which is that actually this is now used as a kind of complete excuse to to try and commercialise and just flog some eggs. Um, so I'm not entirely, you know, on board with that idea that we're we're you know sort of hateful, amoral liberals like kind of decline and fall, you know, smashing our cars and stuff on Christmas Day and not even knowing it. Um, how do you feel about that thesis? I mean, I just don't buy it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm I'm intrigued to see if there is any sort of polling or statistical evidence behind it. YouGov has done one poll where, when prompted, when given the option to say you wanted to bring back blue passports, about a third of people, so not a majority of Leave or Remain voters, went, yeah, I'd quite like blue passports. When you assume that at least some of those people just prefer the colour blue to maroon, I personally do think blue is a nicer colour than maroon, right? That didn't change how I voted in the referendum. I think one of the interesting things about what's happened is the referendum has allowed a certain bit of the right to get rid of David Cameron. And they've had an, the return of a kind of earlier generation of allegedly Tory modernisers, mm. but who, who don't, don't get that. For example, if you want to get affluent ethnic minorities to vote for you, you know, most of you know, I came here in the 70s and now I'm very rich and I vote Labour even though I don't like their tax policy. They don't like being called citizens of nowhere, which is how definitely how that type of voter who, who Cameron saw his political success peeling away that sort of vote um, just wouldn't use that kind of language. But because of what's happened with the Labour Party, there are no consequences to them going back to their mid-noughties kind of culture war yeah, I think that's um, true, actually. I think that you're right. It is a kind of certain person who's very jubilant at having won. And having won in a binary referendum, right, rather than some smudgy result where some people have voted for this party or that party on a range of manifesto stuff, they feel like there's been a kind of cultural referendum about what kind of person you are and their side won, which is a kind of incredibly black and white view of the referendum result. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, like, to be honest, like, the main drivers in a yeah, very diminishing order were one control of immigration, which is not actually the same as wanting to reduce it, right? Control covers a multitude of of opinions, right? Control of immigration. Two, more money for public services, specifically the NHS, a really large chunk of of that vote. And obviously, both of those... Held, yeah, both of those opinions held by some of the same people, right? So there were some people like, control of immigration, plus I want more money spent on the health service. And then three, some Labour voters just hated Cameron, right? And just wanted shot of him. None of those are an endorsement for the politics of blue passports, up yours, seniors, the word Easter not being on something that the word is. And, you know... I was also talking to my mum about a friend of hers who voted leave and who said, well, actually, she's really, she, she was really worried about 
um, uh, sovereignty. And actually, this is somebody who's got loads of family in Europe. Um, and, and I think that's really interesting because that's quite... Uh, her conception of sovereignty is not a kind of screw you, you know, Dago's kind of version of it, right? It's a kind of... It's more of a, I see myself as somebody who want, you know, who thinks that Britain should make its own laws. I think there's... Sovereignty, again, smushes together, I think, which is partly a kind of, I think there's a kind of class element to it, a sort of gentility about it that actually would recoil slightly from some of that more kind of like, screw you, Europeans kind of stuff that that we're getting at the moment. Yeah, and so I think, you know, so a lot of people are talking about liberal overreach and, oh, you know, the reason why we left the EU is because too many women went to work. Um but, um, but that's a really small percent. I mean, the yeah, thing is, when you look at social attitude surveys, the number of people who wouldn't be happy if their child married somebody of another race has just fallen just so dramatically. Oh, yes, the absolutely. number of people who wouldn't be happy if their child was gay, right, has just fallen so dramatically. That A lot of that early noughties Toryism that you're talking about is still pretty actually culturally regressive as well. Yeah. And those values, they are definitely in a minority of. Right, and actually, what they want is they they want not all this homosexuality being forced down our throats on BBC One and you know men kissing at seven pm stuff, and they do not absolutely do not have a majority in the country for that. Yeah, and I think so. We talk a lot about you know, particularly obviously in recent history at the NS about kind of the the missing alternative, right? And the thing that most elites in London are obsessed by is this idea that the missing party is a small L liberal party, faintly social democraticish, pro European but slightly more robust on welfare. But actually, the, the missing party in British politics is pro-welfare, genuinely left-wing, not in a kind of sort of, you know, not in a kind of bolt-on, insincere way. Um, and, yeah, and kind of not liberal in a permissive way, but kind of liberal in a I don't care. It's, you know, in a, in a literal... It's your life. It's your life, or, you know, an English man's home is his castle and he can bonk whoever he likes in it kind of way. And actually, that that is sort of the, the missing force in British politics, not a kind of Macron liberalism kind of thing. Yeah, I think you know what you mean. There's a difference between wanting to support a party that has identity-based stuff as its kind of its driving force so it's a, a party that's very loud about gay rights for example and one that is just okay with it it's not part of its campaigning base but it is not an actively homophobic party and i think that's a kind of that's an interesting distinction to to draw okay enough of eggs let's take a break before we return to we're gonna have to talk about ken 
I mean, I, I think it is highly unlikely, to me at least, that Ken will be back on the Grassroots Alliance slate anytime soon because a lot of people who are very angry about what Ken said are, you know, have, have his politics but condemned him you know, very early on and in the strongest terms. So John Landsman, obviously. Um, and in That's the head of momentum. The head of momentum. And, and, and in order for the... Um, but the thing for is, the, is, is, for the left slate to get you know, to get agreement on all it, everyone has to agree. And there are so many people who would veto veto Ken. And it, it it's one of those. The thing I find amazing about this verdict is it, it does kind of sum up Labour's astonishing ability to find the sweet spot, which irritates everyone. Right, the party so, of the naught percent. Right. Yeah. So if if you are like the kind of crank who thinks that what Ken said was okay, uh, then you're 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 not going to be happy because the party has gone. What you said was not okay. If you're someone who thinks that what he said was not okay, then the party's gone. It wasn't okay, but it turns out that the ban is a year. And I mean, also, I think the real problem is, which one of many problems, is that his his total lack of uh, his feeling that he's been witch hunted, right? Um, and I think if he'd said the things that he'd said, and then he'd gone on actually trying to speak to Jewish groups, if he tried to learn, if he then said, "Look, I'm really apologetic," actually, I think that would have been very different. But he was on Newsnight the night of the verdict, saying, "Look, I just I've got a letter here from you know such and such person saying that I'm entirely right," and I think that's what people find. And the morning before, he was on the Today program, going, "Oh, you know, actually, Mossad worked with." With, with the Nazis. And, I mean, one, Mossad wasn't created until 1949, so it would have been hard for them to work with the Nazis. But uh, time-travelling Mossad agents, maybe. But uh, That's so, how they get you. That's how they steal your shoe. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, it, it's odd, because it is actually in microcosm the problem of Jews in Europe throughout history, right? Um, there obviously is racial and sexual discrimination in the Labour Party. And I think some of the commentary, particularly when I think about things that, you know, women staff have, have sort of said and said, well, you know, if this is a story, can I say anonymous? Like, well, it's, you're not really, if you're anonymous, it's not really a story, right? Mm. But, you know, women staffers who've been, you know, mistreated by their, their mostly male uh, bosses and then the party has hung them out to dry, for example, right? That That is also a perennial problem. But there are a significant number of women in the Labour Party. There are a significant number of black people in the Labour Party, Bengalis in the Labour Party. So, for example, I mean, to take Manchester Gorton as an example. Uh, we had an all BME shortlist. Yeah, and, and effectively, you know, BAME, BAME heavyweights in the Labour Party from left to right felt that the leadership had been taking them for granted for some time and they were able to assert themselves because of their size. Um the, the blunt truth is that although the Jewish labor movement is, is organizing and, and issued a very short but powerful uh, statement, I thought yesterday, about, you know, Cable Street teaches us that we stay and fight uh, rather, than, rather than retreat, they, they are much more dependent on the intervention of outsiders, which is, I mean, for example, although I can't think of a recent example of the labor right being quite this blasé about such a public example of anti-Semitism, uh, and I, I agreed with Tom Watson's statement, which I thought was very powerful. The, the blunt truth is every uh, Labour MP in, a, in, an, in, an, in, a, in an urban seat has sat in a, 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 you know, an evangelical church or a mosque and someone has said something anti-Semitic and they've just gone, well, I'm just going to pretend I haven't heard that. Because to be honest, basically, there are only three Labour MPs who 
have a, an electorally significant number of Jewish voters. It's actually the parallel of Anoush's very good interview with Saeed Avasi today, right? When About she says, Muslim representation she says, yeah, in the Tory wh- party. Yeah, wh- why does the Tory party feel able to behave like this? Well, because it doesn't rely on or receive very many Muslim votes. Yeah, I think that that really came across quite strongly, actually, is that the, some of the people who've been able to be loudest about this are non-Jewish Labour MPs. Um but I think, and also the other thing is that if, if Twitter has taught us anything, it's that there are a lot of really, I mean, I had no idea it, until a couple of years ago quite how many conspiracy theorists ha- still really do say things like, ah, oh, the Rothschilds, mm. in, in this kind of, and people you would otherwise think are quite normal. And then they kind of start, you know, they do genuinely believe in, in, in kind of global Jewish conspiracies. It's, I, I, I mean, I had really thought that was something that was now an extraordinarily minority I mean, if nothing opinion. else, we have conclusively proved that there is not a global Jewish conspiracy. I mean, they cannot take down an octogenarian retired mayor. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, um, I, I, so I think, it's an, I think it's an astonishing bit. I mean, the, I think the problem is now um, how long it takes Labour to build back trust with Jewish community groups, with Jewish newspapers. Um, you know, that is a process now of, of years, right? Yeah, of, of decades. I mean, as, you know, gosh, I mean, it was this time last year that we were discussing this. And this this is the thing, right? You can, you can look at the ward by wards and ignoring the fact that it's morally repugnant, it, it lost Labour votes in the 2016 locals, right? There were seats where, you know, controlling for every demographic other than, than Jewishness, where labor labor performed in a way it did not anywhere else on the on the night right so so ken's remarks hurt the labor party parking the moral issue he just should not be there for that reason even if you don't care about the the anti-racism stuff um but you know as i said last year right there are people who who will not vote for the conservative party who share their values who don't like the 50p rate because of rivers of blood in the 1970s now actually to be honest to be frank with the exception, the partial exception of David, actually, no, I think with the exception of David Cameron, I don't think there has been a single conservative leader, including the incumbent, who I would say has genuinely and sincerely actually tried to to peel back any of that rhetoric. And so, the, so maybe Cameron's relative success at that shows them, to be honest, if the next uh, Labour leader, not least because there is a a strong tradition of collectivism, solidarity, all of the kind of sort of Labour values within the community, you know, maybe the damage isn't as as irrevocable as it, it feels now, but it does have to be sincere and to actually care about it. And I think the most sinister thing is this has once again shown for a large number of people in the Labour Party, it's not that they themselves are anti-Semitic, it's that they see it as a character flaw on a par with having bad breath or a quick temper. I also think it's it's complicated in the same way that I think I see now a lot of what I would say is overt sexism against women online, but it's framed as being against white women, mm. white middle-class women, whatever, white middle-class cis women, whatever you want to say. And, and then someone says something that is actually just quite sexist. But it's framed as being, well, I'm having a go at those uppity bitches. And I think that some of the feeling about, even by people who aren't, necessarily say uh, anti-semitic things themselves is that actually you know what jewish people are doing really well we all know they're really rich so why are they why are they complaining right they've got they're not really oppressed they haven't got anything to complain about and that doesn't you know that it just does not take away the fact that 
And for a period in 20th century history, it did not matter how rich or otherwise privileged you were. Like this one facet of your personality was enough to get you killed. Yeah. And I think people are really bad at, at understanding that. Yeah, because I mean, I remember, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Because I remember when I reviewed a book about um, conservative attempts to get ethnic minorities to vote uh, uh, for the Tories for progress, right? You know, the, the and the number of, you know, people who I would have thought of as, you know, the kind of person who does that kind of slightly thoughtless, oh, of course I support everything Israel does, and is like, really? No one I'm related to does. I don't know why you do that. Um, when I went, oh, yes, ethnic minorities did not vote for the Conservatives in 2010, they went, even the Jews? And it's like, what do you mean, even the Jews? And, it, and I think you're exactly right, because there's this sense of, oh, you know, well, they're they're privileged, et cetera, et cetera. They're, they're wealthy, and if you're wealthy, your your problems as a minority go goes away. Although, of course, actually, if you walk around Stamford Hill, you know, the Jews there are very obviously not wealthy. Yeah. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You Ask Us. And so a number of, of journalists on Twitter have vented their anger, as, as they say in the tabloids, at Labour's... Slammed! Yeah, Labour's, uh, in their views, subpar media operation. Now, I thought, you know, seeing as you are, you know, an aged sage with experience of many media organisations, uh, I thought I would punt this question to you, which is... Instinctively, I'm I'm conflicted about that. I think it's kind of a bad look. What do you think? Uh, I agree. I think actually, do you know what? Um, Deep Dive, our sister podcast, which is hosted by Ian Leslie and Stuart Wood, they had Laura Kunzberg on talking about media bias, and she made a, a, a I think a, a, the best defence I've heard of the lobby system, which is something that I have big qualms about, by saying, you know, it's it's the one place where actually you know people, anyone, even the most junior reporter, can just stop a minister and ask them for a comment. Whereas in the US, you have to sort of like try and it's really hard to get access to people. So the the, the trade off for everybody being in there all the time, kind of embedded, is that you get you can actually scrutinise people. Now, I think there's, as we, you know, even in war reporting, you see embedded reporters as a huge problem because, you know, A, you become a kind of trustee, you inevitably become kind of slightly complicit because it's the same people you see every day. You you really, I think you need to maintain some distance um, from the people you're writing about in journalism. Um so that you don't kind of get compromised. But I think there is a fair point that actually lobby journalism does offer that in return, you do actually, it's, I think it's more likely that stuff is going to, kind of bad stuff will come to somebody's attention because there are so many people there all the time. So the problem is, I mean, we've had this all the time, uh, and I, uh, because we've been quite critical of, of Corbyn, um, that you kind of want to say, and people, I think the trouble is you feel like you want to defend yourself, right? And this is always, a, an, I try on Twitter and I fail to pursue the Queen Mother's theory, right? Never complain, never explain. Worked quite well for her. She just drank a lot of Dubonnet and kind of got on with it. Because actually people don't want to hear about how hard your journalism job is, particularly when your journalism job is basically sitting in a cushy office in London, writing things people have told you, not, say, you know, being under mortar fire. Mm. Um, But equally well, I think that I'm surprised. I think that if it were the other way around, I think that uh, Corbyn fans would be quite happy about it because it's actually being much more transparent about the way journalism works and revealing you know exposing to the open air the fact that it does rely on personal relationships and on bargains and stuff like that so i i like the greater transparency about it i just think there's a an issue of kind of unequal power right which is that we know that journalists 
would be will not be as mean about CCHQ right as they will be about Labour comms, independent of their performance, because they know that they have much more, many more things that they need from CCHQ. Yeah, I mean, I think it is striking that at the moment the the Labour Party is is unintentionally not that good at making news. Um, Although I think there are some people in the leader's office who have been quite good. Matt Zob cousin, who unfortunately is leaving, um, you know, also I think was in addition quite witty. So whenever like a, a Labour source had a good quote, so, you know, what do you think of the Gang of Four great band? You know, he was just very good at that kind of uh, thing. But the reason why people will take to Twitter exactly as you say and complain about the Labour Party being rubbish in a way that they mostly won't go, why is Downing Street not creating any news, is because... It's mostly not in the proprietal interest to do that, and because the government is the government, and people don't think it's going to go any anywhere yeah. anytime soon. I think there is a sense of like you can give them a kicking because it's cost free, which I think is. I don't think the kicking is undeserved. It's just that it's unequally applied. But I do think there is a problem. And this is something we've talked about before about Labour feeling a certain kind of sense of entitlement because of its history and its legacy and its recent spell in government, whereas. UKIP, the Greens and the Lib Dems all run a much more scrappy, fighty press operation, right? Because they know they've got to scrabble for every bit of coverage that they get. And I don't think Labour has fully absorbed the lesson yet that actually it has to make its own, whether it's quite hard being an opposition, you know, they they need to be they need to be sort of more nimble and kind of startup-y and yeah, scrappy. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Because I mean obviously my recurrent phrase is the left plays on a higher difficulty setting. But I think I used to think that the problem wasn't the left, the, the bar the left had to clear was too high. I now think the actually the problem is that the bar the right has to clear is, is too low. I'm, I'm fairly comfortable with the standard that the left is held to. I'm uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, well, as the eggs show. Yeah, it's really funny, isn't it? It's just she's just kind of got away with that. Yeah, literally. And also, I just think if, 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 if Corbyn did that, right, if Corbyn made a comment on someone where he clearly just was holding a grudge, Every time he commented, it would be measured in eggs, right? That, or that if he just gave a comment on a news story that was just obvious bollocks. Yeah. But there is this sort of weird conspiracy that everyone's now never going to mention. Probably the story will just die, right? It will just ne- it'll be kind of buried in a shallow grave and then concreted over and will just never be mentioned again. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the left can be... I mean, I had this conversation with Jason about our issue. You know, the left can be very self-flagellatory and actually sometimes the right just goes, no, it didn't happen, didn't see it, marching onwards, continue forwards. The New Statesman podcast was presented by me, Helen Lewis, and Stephen Bush. It was produced by India Book and mixed by James Shields. This week, why not try one of the other New Statesman family of podcasts? There is Seriously, which you can find at newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY, or Skylines from City Metric. Or we have our own special spin-off series called Deep Dive. There are two episodes available now, Media Bias with Laura Kunzberg, and also one on terrorism. Those are available on our main feed. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.